Well, morning, everyone. Good to see you. And uh, great that we've been able to carve the time out of the diaries to, to be here. I trust that God will really help us over these couple of days together. We've got uh, a couple of, of some different guests with us, which we'll introduce during uh, the day. So we're looking forward to hearing from different folk uh, who, who are going to be taking part. And um, just to give a little bit of a, uh, an idea of where we're, we're going with these prayer and equippings over this, this year, um, the, th- the three we have, we're, we're going to be sort of focusing on a different, a different theme each time. And um, hopefully you'll remember the, uh, the E plus E equals C thing that we've been talking about, the enough large-scale corporate prayer that's the first E. The second E, everyone a witness, trying to create a culture where we're all sharing our faith, words, works, and wonders, that sort of thing, equals the C, church planting. Uh, and those sort of, that sort of headline of, of what I really feel the Lord is putting on our hearts collectively as a, as a family of churches at, at this moment. So, and for, the foreseeable, and for a number of years ahead, really. So what we wanted to do in these prayer and equippings over this year was just to use each, we've got three of them, so to look at a different part of that equation each time. So this is the, the first one, which is the first E. So we're looking at enough, we're looking at prayer, corporate prayer together, primarily over these couple of days. There's other things we're going to put into that, but um, I want to just talk a little bit about that in this first session, and then we're going to do some uh, um, corporate prayer together around the enough sort of style of prayer that we've been doing. Um, but before I just get into that, I just wanted to sort of share why I think that the Lord is helping us to sort of focus on these things. As you can imagine, I mean, most of you are in some sort of leadership in church life, and you know what it's like if you want to communicate something, I don't know, on a Sunday morning or at some way, at uh, some, some point in church life. When you give out your well-crafted and brilliantly honed vision... Um, half of the people you want to hear it are not there. <laughs> of those that are there, 30% are not listening. 20% don't agree with what you've just said. And the rest will have forgotten it by the time they get home. Thus is the challenge of vision casting. Now, if that's, that's fairly familiar local church life? Come on. Yes, it is. <laughs> Pretend. No, I don't know what you're talking about. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Now, you can multiply that by, you know, quite a factor when we come to talk about vision casting across a whole family of churches because we've got geographical constraints. We've got time constraints. We've got proximity constraints. We've got all kinds of constraints. We've got communication challenges. So, one of the things that has been my prayer and the prayer of those of us who've been trying to help me as we've been in this first five years of our journey together since New Frontiers transitioned, is that, Lord, help us have clarity as to what our objectives are. Have, show us what it is um, that you want us particularly to focus on. Um, now it's important I just tell you that journey because then you'll see where everything hopefully fits in. It's really And really because um, I can't do this without you. 
right? We're in this together, right? So it's really important we kind of understand where I believe the Lord's taking us. And as a result of sort of praying that prayer and thinking about it, um, most of you will be aware that this little book came about, Relational Mission, A Way of Life. And the idea of that is not so much for it to be a book for people to read and then think, okay, that's interesting. But it really is a, it's, it's like a, a manifesto. Um, I don't know if we've got the seven things. Yeah, the, uh, we're just uh, putting up the chapter headings. Because what, what I wanted to do when we put this together was to, to just sort of summarize seven things that I really feel need to be, as it were, characteristics of, of us as family of churches. It's not so much that every church you go in, the style will be the same. We don't want clones. We don't want everyone to look the same and do things the same. We want the variety of it. But what we really want to see is that within every church, in whatever nation we're working in, whatever kind of church, whether it's a small church, large church, whatever it is, different cultures, all the rest of it, we want these kind of hallmarks to be the values, the objectives, the things we're going for in every church. So we want it to be a real family. Now, that's not just a theological statement, yeah, we're the family of God, but it's actually... It describes a culture. It describes how it's not just the structure, it's the texture. It's a textural thing. So does it feel family? Does it feel like brothers and sisters? Does it feel like a family? And that's something, that's an objective. That's an important thing to go for. So we're not just going for the structure, we're going for the texture, a real family. Raising sons and daughters, having a, a real commitment to raising up the next generation coming after us so they can stand on our shoulders we can help them into things. So that's why things like lead and training are really important, as well as all the discipleship that's going on. But it's also about a, it's an objective, it's a culture, so that all of us in leadership now are constantly thinking, how can I help the next generation get even further than I've been able to do? That's a, a way of life. It's an objective. It's something we're going for. Everyone a witness. This sort of feeling that every single one of us, evangelism, isn't, evangelism, evangelism is not a specialism, it's not a department, it's a way of life, it's something I, you, all of us need to be primarily thinking about sharing our faith through our stories, through acts of kindness, through supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, it's a culture, it's an objective, we want it to be in every relational mission church that you walk in, there's lots of stories, there's a priority in sharing our faith, it's the thing that drives us, it's the most important thing of everything we do to bring people to know Jesus, isn't it? I mean, there is nothing else that matters as much as that, so we want that to be right at the heart of every single church. The prayers of many... It's not just about making prayer meetings a sort of a small thing for keen people. No, it's a culture, it's an aspiration, it's an, object, it's an objective that we want to be, have a part of who we are. And we'll, I'll be talking about that in a bit more detail shortly. A church for a broken world, making sure that we're serving the poor. It's a real heartbeat of everything we're doing, empowering those who haven't got the freedom to make choices for themselves. But not just about um, the poor, actually about influencing the workplace, influencing different sectors of society, making sure that the church is relevant and influential in all the areas of life around us for the common good, for the kingdom of God to be expressed. Starting new families, a, a robust commitment to church planting, whether that, and, and whether that's expressed through things like multi-site or missional communities, or whether it's starting in, uh, indigenous um, autonomous churches in new nations or in new towns, new cities, new villages. We want to have a heartbeat that's constantly looking to plant new churches 
And then we have a compass but no map, meaning that we don't want to get locked into a certain way of doing things. We want to be very prophetic. We want to be able to hold a plumb line of values up to it, but say, Lord, we're not locked into a map. You can redraw maps for each new season. Now, I don't think anyone's going to object to any one of those seven things. No? I hope not. Right there, Steph's with me. Right. All of those things, I don't think uh, I'm introducing anything new. I'm just summarizing what I feel God has put within us as in our heartbeat, yeah? It's just stuff you say, yeah, I believe that, I believe that, I believe that. So in some ways, this is becoming our kind of manifesto. And what I'd love to see is that we as leaders increasingly... Um, just champion these things. I mean, one or two churches, we're just doing it at the moment, but actually preaching through these as a, as a series, like seven weeks on each subject. And we found it really helpful uh, in my home church, and there's numbers of churches now beginning to do that. Other churches are having Relational Mission Sundays where we can focus on the E plus E equals C, which is kind of like a, a summary of all those things, if you like, a sort of a short, memorable little, little thing. Um, I really need your help for us to get hold of this and say this is not just a, a flash in the pan this year's vision. This is our journey for the next number of years. Yeah, This is something we've just got to work at and work at and work at because all of these things are cultural changes and cultural things. They're not, um, they're not programs. They're things that we've got to really work at and give ourselves too. So with everyone a witness, I'm, I'm trying, my wife trying, we're, all, we're both trying together to change the way we live even, because being in church leadership, you spend so much time with, with Christians, which is you know, lovely, praise God, love, love the church, but we've got, we've lead, as leaders have got to model the things we're wanting people to prize, which means giving more time to sharing our faith, taking more steps, being more bold in those sorts of things. So it's something we've got to lead by example in. So do you get that? Yeah. Right. So that brings me then back to this uh, this morning. Now, interesting, those of you know, I've just had uh, January as a sort of, a, I call it a month of reflection, because if you call it a month of prayer, people tend to think of me as being far more godly than I am. I don't spend a whole month praying, uh, although I do spend substantial chunks of it um, with that opportunity. But it gives me a chance every year just to disengage from normal sort of stuff and just to try to hear God, just to learn things, I meet lots of new people who I think can help me teach me things because I believe in lifelong learning. I believe try, you, know, you can always learn new things. Time to pray, time to think, time to reflect. Time to pray through prophetic things that we've had for a number of years. And one of the things that happened just at the beginning of the month was um, a friend of mine, uh, Susjith from uh, Barry St. Edmunds, he, I was just having to chat to him, and he, he had a prophetic word for me. And he said, just as when um, John the Baptist came saying, kingdom of heaven is, is coming, as it were, and then Jesus came saying exactly the same thing, he said the same message in two different seasons had two different effects. And he said, I think you need to keep saying the same things in this new season as what you've begun to say in the past season because, because there's going to be a different effect if you keep saying the same thing. So that kind of emboldened me more to do with, to do with uh, all that I've just outlined to you, to think this is a long-term thing. And it's actually something I believe God will... There's, there's seasons in the Holy Spirit where we, we faithfully do what we do and the Holy Spirit 
changes the game when he brings certain seasons into being. And I, I do believe there's some things that the Lord wants us to be very persistent about, and they will bring about fruit in the coming days. And one of those things is to do with uh, corporate prayer. Now, just to bring you up to date with the, uh, the, the Enough initiative, the corporate prayer initiative we do, for those of you who are not too familiar with it, it's uh, three times a year when we gather in different hubs, different churches are invited to meet in different hubs, all at the same time, but in different locations, and all praying about the same thing. So it's extraordinary prayer. It's not the usual routine of prayer. It's an extraordinary prayer meeting. It's visible union. We're all connected uh, through through being in the same uh, on the same night, the same day, time, but in different locations. And it's explicit agreement. So we all pray through the same things. Now we've been doing that for a number of years now. Probably since the third year. Can't remember. Third year probably. We've got three more this year. Uh, last, the last one we did was our biggest ever. Right from the start, we've had over 2,000 people gather every time we've done it. And this last time, we had 2,500. And Edward, who's now partnering with us with Kenya, they stormed in with a stonking 4,000 on their first one. And I said to him, Edward, I really do want conservative estimates. I really do. And he said, oh, no, it, the minimum was 4,000. So you've got 6,500 people, and he says it's going to really take off amongst his churches. I mean, he says we're just getting started uh, with it. But what's encouraging to me is that I've now got numbers of other streams, networks, and other spheres, even within New Frontiers, saying we're quite interested in either coming in with you or learning from what you're doing and then doing our own kind of version of it, which is fine. Although I'd love people to join in with us, because I think it could give it some, some clout. But the point of it is, I do believe God is doing something with this. This is not just us having a bright idea. God's wind is beneath the wings of corporate prayer. And I hope to, to sort of just show you that, uh, as we go through this this morning, that if we can get this right in terms of our sustained investment in it, I genuinely believe when God stirs, stirs his people to pray in large numbers consistently for a period of time. It is always because he's at, he is preparing something that's going to come as a result of it. It is, it is preparatory work for a move of God. Uh, and I do believe that more and more people are going to join in. And, and so I want to encourage you, let's really give ourselves to this. This is, and I, I, don't, I choose my words carefully, the enough thing is the most important thing we're doing at the moment, bar none. Absolutely total three-line whip, let's crack on with it and give ourselves to it. Now, you might say, well, why is that the case? Well, let's put up the next slide, and I just want to go through the, the foundation of why we're doing enough and just look at it from the Scripture. So there's a... Um, of the next. There we go. This was the verse that I felt God speak to me about right at the beginning when we started to think about the prayers of many and what's become called enough, where in 2 Corinthians 1.11, Paul is facing considerable challenge to his apostolic mission. He's, he's experienced a lot of hardship, a lot of persecution, a lot of difficulty. He even talks about despairing of life. We, you know, he's really, really facing some considerable challenges. And he writes to the Corinthians and he says to them, and I want you just to notice the, the emphasis. He says, you must, you must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us 
through the prayers of many. So I just want to look very briefly together at some key things to do with corporate prayer that I, I, that I think can help us have even greater traction with it. And um, so, Father, I pray you just help us as we look at this verse together. I pray you breathe new life and fresh wind beneath our wings of prayer, Lord. The enemy will do anything he can to take our eye off the ball of prayer. And I pray that you would give a gift of faith amongst us now to believe that we're not just doing something that we've thought of. We're responding to initiative from heaven. Pray, Father, for a gift of faith. I pray, Holy Spirit, be among us now as I just share these few thoughts together, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want to just notice from that verse is this. You must. You must. Now, the Bible's full of imperatives and indicatives. An indicative is things indicating truths. So uh, we are now alive in Christ. Um, it's a free gift. Uh, you, un- you died and your life is now hidden with Christ. You now reign with him. It, indicating things, indicatives, things that God has done for us. We were passive in it. Our salvation's a total gift of grace. We haven't deserved it. We haven't earned it. There's nothing about us that would merit it. But God in his sovereign love and mercy has looked upon us and has said, I'm going to save you. And we are passive recipients of a glorious inheritance. Amen? It's an indicative. It's something that God has done for us. We can never undo it. We can never be worthy of it. We relish it and enjoy it and rejoice in the tremendous salvation God has given to us every single day. It's something that's happened to us for which we respond with faith and thanksgiving. But there are also in the Bible imperatives, things like you must, where we're told to do something. And we're told to do them in response to what's been done for us. And Paul here says, you must in other words, if you don't do this, there's something going to happen. And, and D.A. Carson says, Paul is pleading with the church here to gain for him in prayer what might otherwise not be given. There's actually something that can be lost by failing to engage with an imperative. We won't lose our salvation, we won't lose the favor of God. In fact, if you and I never prayed, never read our Bible, never shared our faith, never went to church, never did anything again... God's love for us and his salvation upon us is not altered one bit because it is not sustained by any work or merit of man. But because we are now alive in Christ, our very nature has been changed whereby the imperatives call out from within our soul saying, I want to obey you. Just as Jesus said, I want, uh, it's my meat to do the will of him who sent me. I delight to do your will. There's something within us that wants to please God because our nature has been fundamentally changed, Yes. It's, it's an imperative that flows out of an indicative. Now, what do we do with the imperatives in Scripture? What do we do with them? For a grace-based movement, we, we, we're a little nervous of them because, because many of us grew up in, in uh, who are older, grew up in churches that were very legalistic where the emphasis was so much on the imperative, this is what you do, and there wasn't any indicative. There wasn't any rejoicing in the grace. It was just like you do this and all grace is just a thought, a concept. And praise God, he turned all that on his head with us and showed us that we are a grace-based people. But that does not mean we throw out the imperatives with it. It matters how we live. And one of the things I've been quite challenged about in terms of seeing people now come to Christ now from a very, very un-Christianized world now in the West 
is you can't just assume people are going to know how to live. They don't. So people's language needs adjusting. People's lifestyle needs adjusting. People's thought process needs adjusting. People, people need discipling in the basics of how to even live a godly life. Imperatives. Now Paul says here, this is imperative. You must, you must help us by prayer. He knows, this is the importance of it. He knows his apostolic mission will not succeed to the measure God desires it to unless many people are involved in praying for it. Is that not the conclusion from this verse? Why, 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 is, he, why is he emphasizing it so strongly and passionately if it's just an aside point that would be nice to have a few prayer point, a few prayer partners. He's not saying, I'll send you a prayer letter, and it'd be nice if you could mention me. Remember me in your prayers. This is not what he's saying. He's saying, come on, guys, I am in real trouble if all of you, loads of you, do not pray. In fact, it's the only part of Scripture I can find in the New Testament where the size of the meeting is important to Paul. There is nowhere in the New Testament, as I can see it, where Paul particularly says the size of your church is important to the impact of your mission. I cannot find him emphasizing church growth. I cannot find him emphasizing if you've got a big church, you're doing much better than if you've got a small church. I can't find that. No, that's not to say church growth is bad, because what is the ideal size of a local church? Bigger. That is true. But Paul is not hung up in the way that somehow in the West we seem to have become hung up by church growth, church growth conferences, church growth books, church growth this, church growth that. What about the size of the prayer meeting, which is the only thing that Paul mentions? The prayers of many. He's saying many people praying will make a difference. If there are not many people praying, it will make a substantially less of a difference. Is that not what he's saying? I mean, just look at Scripture for it. Let it speak for itself. Blessing granted through prayers of many. That's why I unashamedly press for numbers when it comes to enough. Why? Because Paul does. Paul does. Now, if your church is 50 people or 500 people, I will celebrate with you whatever size of church you are. You know, we want to bless everyone's mission. Everyone's mission matters. Village, town, city, I don't care. Everything matters the size of a prayer meeting really does matter. Really does, according to Paul. I'm just trying to give apostolic weight to what Paul gives apostolic weight to. This is not an incidental. We're swimming against the tide. We are vastly outnumbered, outresourced. We are attempting something so great that no human being can achieve it. I think that therefore requires some prayer. If we're not attempting something that cannot be done, we don't need prayer. But I don't know about you, but I've got a vision for something far bigger than I know I can achieve. Is that not what makes you get up in the morning? You think, Lord, we're going for something that unless you're in, we're doomed to failure. If you think, well, I think we can, let's look at our objectives for this year. Yeah, I think we can achieve that on looking at the percentage of growth we've had over the last five years. I think we might be able to receive. Scrap it. And go for something that you say, oh God, what have I said publicly? <laughs> go for something that makes you embarrassed unless God is in it. It's beneath him to come up with something that we say, well, let's just carefully calculate what we can, what we can manage. I want to manage the unmanageable. 
Don't you? And as far as I can see, prayer is the fuel that makes the unmanageable attainable. That's why Paul said, look, you've got to pray for us because we're just not going to be able to do it unless you're with us. Have you ever noticed how prayer becomes much easier when you're in a crisis? How many people need to go on a prayer training course or read a prayer book when they're facing a problem? Not many. Somehow the words come naturally. Why is that? It's because prayer is designed for drama. Prayer is designed for crisis. If you look through the New Testament, most of the really powerful prayer meetings take place when they're really up against it. One of the best ways to get more people at your corporate church prayer meeting is create some crises. <laughs> All right? If you haven't got any, make up a few. Just think of something. Scare the pants off people on a Sunday. Tell them the world's going to end unless we pray. Whatever you do, drama, crisis actually provokes a heart cry of prayer. It's, you find it when you look through the book of Acts. They didn't have gentle Jesus prayer meetings. They were up against it. In case you hadn't noticed, we in the West are up against it. Big time. Now, I honestly believe that we can make a difference through our prayers. I really do. I believe, I believe that. One of the things that... Um, God's been speaking to me about and, and, um, and us locally, the, uh, the leaders team, the eldership team at Lowestoft, is we've just started a very simple Friday lunchtime fasting. Uh, I've done a little coffee break, some of you might have seen on, on YouTube, um, where we just wanted to do something manageable, sustainable, just to, and I've done a little bit of teaching on fasting, because there's all sorts of strange things, strange teaching to do with fasting, but I just want to redeem it. You know, fasting is not a... A work to gain merit, it is a tool to gain ground. Yeah. Right? Fasting is not a work to gain merit, it is a tool to gain ground. And many of the things that the church in the global south and the global east are teaching us, if we're humble enough in the west to learn it, is that prayer with fasting adds an extra edge to prayer. So what we've just started to do is to, you know, and one of the things Mike Breen says is don't fast from things you can't fast from, fast from things you find easy. Because you learn to control your appetites in a good way, in a godly way, and a sustainable way. So we just, every, nearly every week now, not always every week, but most weeks, we just miss lunch on a Friday, and we just give an hour to prayer. And then you just carry on as normal. No, you think, well, that's not a very big fast. No, but it's a step towards... Something, And it's not even about the amount of fasting you do. It's about, the, it's about expressing a heart of longing. It's about expressing a heart of devotion. It's about expressing dependency. It's about expressing the fact, Lord, you are my food. Now, I would just like to invite any of you who might feel you want to do this just to begin to join in with us. Just Friday lunch times, miss, miss lunch, just pray, either get together with others, maybe introduce it in the church. We're going to just build up a bit of momentum in it. I want to suggest to you that we are just even on the very edges of the shoreline of learning how to change atmospheres by prayer. We are, we, are, we are learning, and we're beginning to just step more and more into it. That brings me on to the second point, which is to do with the dynamics of prayer. So if we can have the next slide up. Just, uh, there we go, the dynamics of prayer. And... Um, 
I was trying to think of some examples of how to illustrate why, why it's so important we pray persistently. Now, there's, there's two kinds of answers to prayer we find in the New Testament, particularly with Jesus. You get Jesus walking past the fig tree that's not got any fruit on it, and he curses it, and the next day it's shriveled. Most of us would like our prayers to be like that, wouldn't we? You know, just one quick command, and everything has changed. And sometimes prayer is like that. But very often, prayer is also about persistence. And persistence beyond what sometimes feels easily attainable. So, give you a couple of examples. So, our, uh, our cat at home, well, it's actually Sue's cat, not mine. <coughs> my, my, my cat is dead, but hers still lives. Uh, yeah, it's a bit sad, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Her cat, Wilson, if you walk in our house, he will read you. He, he will read you. He will assess you. He will do a personality profile on you within the first couple of minutes of you walking in our house. Why is he doing that? He is doing that to assess one thing. Will you feed me? <laughs> See, now, Sue is very much, you'll have your food at the right time and the right amount, no compromise. He knows, with me, soft touch. <laughs> Which is why he will, the moment I walk in tonight, he will be annoying me persistently sh with shameless audacity, importunate prayers for food. Now, he is a very exam good example of how we as believers need to be when it comes to God. Because we need to read God. Assess him. What is he like? What has he said he's like? Because on the basis of what he said he's like, we know what we can get from him. Is that not true? Is that not the basis of faith? is being confident of what God has promised us to be the case. And Jesus himself, talking about the widow and the judge, gave this example. He said, this widow knew that by her persistent, shameless audacity, banging on the door of this judge, she knew that her persistent persistence would wear down this judge who didn't want to give anything to the point where he would cave in and give her what she wanted. And the point Jesus is making is this. If that's how shameless, audacious, importunate prayer can get what it wants from someone who doesn't want to give it, how much more will your Father in heaven who does want to give you good things and who does declare from his word what he is like, how much more will he respond to the shameless, audacious, importunate prayers of many people who keep hammering away at the door of heaven and say like Jacob, I will not let you go unless you bless me. See, God's not trying to be difficult with us. What he's trying to do is to train us to know that once we know his character, we know that nothing else than a yes will work. 
It's knowing that we know him well enough so that we know it's not possible for him to be anything other than what he's told us he is. So even if we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray and we still don't get the breakthrough, we think, well, we're not changing, Lord, because you've told us what you're like. So we're not going anywhere. We won't let you go until you bless us. That's what God's trying to get into us when we talk about corporate prayer. He's trying to get into us a complete awareness and confidence and unshakable belief that what God has promised within his word is totally unshakable. And we will not let you, we're not going anywhere. We're not going anywhere. Until we see you fulfill what you've promised in your word, we can expect. That's why enough really matters. Those are the dynamics of prayer. It's a bit like, uh, in our home we've got this little wood burner. And um, on top of the wood burner, I've put one of these little fan things. And what happens is when the wood burner's got going, it has to get to 50 degrees centigrade. And then at 50 degrees centigrade, the fan starts to go round. It sort of heats the fan, and then it blows the hot air into the room. Now, if I didn't know that from having read the instructions, I could put the fan on top of the wood burner, and maybe I could just watch it for 20 minutes or so, 25 minutes, half an hour, and it's only got up to 45 degrees. Nothing's happening with the fan. I can flick it, try to make it work. Nothing's happening. If I then get frustrated with the fan, stick it back in the box, take it back to the shop and say it doesn't work, that's what many churches and many Christians have done with prayer. You pick it up, put it back in the box, take it back, it doesn't work. We haven't prayed long enough to make it work. There's dynamics that haven't kicked in yet. So even within, with the enough thing, if we think, oh, we've done this for three years now, can't you come up with something else? No! Because we haven't got the temperature up to 50 degrees yet. Now, I understand many people are saying, well, let's have some testimonies of what's happened through enough. Let's have some, uh, some testimonies of answered prayer. And there will be some kind of fig tree moments. But guys, we've only been doing this three years. Ask that question in ten years. Seriously. There is something we have to learn about the dynamics of prayer. that don't, they, they, they have, They're spiritually discerned. They're not this isn't McDonald's, where whatever speed they serve you, they still apologize for the weight. What is that? You gave it to me immediately. I asked for it. You've <laughs> apologized for the weight. How, how much quicker could you have got? Give it to me before I've asked for it? I mean, is, that, is that what prophetic serving? Is that what you're after? Trying to know what I'm going to say? And somehow, yeah, that was great. But we're like that with prayer. Now, a human gestation period, nine months. Agreed? Usually. Huh? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> now, Jeff Stevens, part of our church, who runs this care farm, which you may have seen little videos about that. They have alpacas on the farm. They are weird creatures, really weird creatures. Anyone like to guess the gestation period of an alpaca? <laughs> Come on. Two years? A year? No? All right. 11 months, right? But they can hold it for another month if it's cold, apparently. Could be handy, couldn't it, if that was possible. 
Um, yeah, just move on from that illustration. All right? just, just move on. Now, the point, the point being, what is the point of that? The point of that is this, that if we assumed the gestation period of everything was always the same, we could conclude after nine months, this alpaca isn't expecting. Nothing's going to happen. There's no new life there. There's nothing waiting to be birthed. It's just not, it's not happening. We wrongly put a gestation period on prayer answers most of the time. Most of the time. And God is teaching us to get hold of it like a bone and say, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere until you bless me. Because if you didn't mean it, don't say it. God likes that. He likes us to say, if you don't mean it, don't say it. But he, there, are, there are promises in Scripture of Isaiah chapter 2. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord will be established as chief among the mountains, and all the mountains will flow to it. Many nations will flow to it and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. That's speaking about global impact of the church being more visible than anything else in human history. That, to my knowledge, has not yet been fulfilled. There are cycles of it, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. There are cycles of it taking place. But to my mind, that still rests in the future, yes? So therefore, it is still fuel for our prayers. Because God has promised something that yet we've not seen the fulfillment of. In our generation, we can believe for more, bigger, greater impact because God has made promises that the light will get lighter even if the dark gets darker at the same time. There are precious promises to do with the fruitfulness and the success and the glory of the church in the last days that we have to get hold of and say, Lord, we're not letting you go unless you bless us. So then just lastly, I just want to encourage you by the history of prayer. One of the things that inspired me was reading, if we can have the last slide up, was reading about Jonathan Edwards and William Carey. There they are in all their glory. Carey's wigs fell off. As I read about those two, Jonathan Edwards, his little book, An Humble Attempt, or uh, A Call to United Extraordinary Prayer, really spoke to me about enough. It helped us sort of put the thing together. And Edwards started this, and actually never really quite saw the fruitfulness of it, because he, his life ended very um, suddenly, actually. He was only 53, I think, when he died. Uh, complications from a smallpox injection. So not actually through anything, it was avoidable. Um, but he'd started this thing of getting all the churches he was connected with to do what we do, meet at, diff meet at the same time, different locations, praying really for God's promises of revival and global impact to be, to be seen. William Carey, about, uh, well, quite a bit of time later, next century, picked up on it, and he and his fellows did exactly the same thing, the same model as Edwards, and began what became the, the Baptist Missionary Society. But it was birthed in, uh, they did two years, then seven years of this corporate prayer. Edwards committed to seven years. Both of those men, if we think about the fruit of their lives, we associate it, we think of revival, missionary thrust, global influence, what we mustn't forget is that their fruitfulness was born out of large-scale corporate prayer. 
large-scale corporate prayer. And I felt that, wouldn't it be amazing if whatever God's got for us in the future, we put the same foundation in now and say, Lord, well, whatever you want to do with us over the coming years, we're going to put in a foundation of extraordinary prayer so that we can say that that's really the foundation we're building on. If I can just read a quote from Edwards, uh, where he says, he said, when they started, he said, if we should continue some years and nothing remarkable in providence should appear as though God heard and answered, we should act very unbecoming as believers if we should therefore begin to be disheartened and grow dull and slack in seeking of God so great a mercy. It is very apparent from the word of God that he is often wont to try the faith and patience of his people when they are crying to him for some great and important mercy, by withholding the mercy sought for a season. And not only so, but at first to cause an increase of dark appearances. And yet he, without fail, at last succeeds those who continue instant in prayer with all perseverance and will not let him go except he blesses. So basically what he's saying is there, if we give up after a few years and conclude it isn't working, we're missing it. If we give up after we start doing it and things actually get worse before they get better, we would be missing it. If we continue and become like Jacob who said, I won't let you go until you bless me, then we will see the breakthrough. This is a journey not many in our lifetime have gone through in the Western world. This is very unusual what we are trying to do. Very unusual. To put prayer as the driving force rather than an afterthought. I mean, is that fair? It's, it's, it's very unusual. So we're just going prayer, 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 prayer. But I'll tell you why. Let me just read you this poem just to finish. And I want you just to just listen to this. Through prayer, there is no problem that cannot be solved. Amen? There is no sickness that cannot be healed. There is no burden that cannot be lifted. There is no storm that cannot be weathered. There is no devastation that cannot be relieved. There is no sorrow that cannot be erased. Through prayer, there is no poverty cycle that cannot be broken. There is no sinner that cannot be saved. There is no one perishing that cannot be rescued. There is no one who has fallen who cannot be lifted. Through prayer, there is no hurt that cannot be removed. There is no broken relationship that cannot be mended through prayer. Through prayer, there is no difference that cannot be resolved. There is no hindrance that cannot be shaken. There is no limitation that cannot be overcome. There is no mourning that cannot be comforted. There are no ashes that cannot become beauty. Through prayer, there is no heaviness that cannot be covered with the garment of praise. There is no thirst that cannot be quenched. There is no hunger that cannot be filled. There is no dry ground that cannot be flooded. There is no desert that cannot blossom. There is no congregation that cannot be revived. There is no preacher that cannot be anointed. There is no church pews that cannot be filled. There is no church leadership team that cannot become one. There is no community that cannot be Christianized. And there is no nation that cannot be transformed. If we genuinely believe that, why would we not put prayer 
large-scale, corporate, juggernaut-style prayer at the front end of everything we do. Why would we not? It would be foolishness to invest in anything else because nothing else gives that yield of return. That was what James Fraser said of the Lisu tribe. He said, I feel like a businessman who's found a line that always sells. And the more, I can, the more I can get this line and put it on the shelves, the more they fly off the shelves and the more profit I make. He was talking about prayer being the line that always sells. So what I want us to do is just stand together in a minute. And I just want to ask us, as I say, I, I'm just sharing my heart with you today. I'm on this journey with you. I, I'm not a brilliant prayer. I often, I, I don't know if I've ever thought to myself, wow, that was a great time I had with God then in terms of prayer. I forever look back at what I've said and thought, I didn't quite, didn't quite do it. It's just kind of felt I could have put that better. See, but God's not looking for our eloquence. He's looking for our heart. It's a bit like if you've got young children or you've, I don't know, you, you know, if a young child comes up to you and they're just learning to speak and they're just telling you in their own language that they love you and want to be picked up, you don't say, talk properly, I can't understand what you're saying. <laughs> what a weird response that would be. Well, neither does God say to us when we pray, talk properly, I don't understand what you're trying to say. It's just, it's not what he does. He says, look, don't quite know what you're saying, but... The Bible says the Holy Spirit will help you with groans and cries and sighs that cannot be uttered. All my vocal inadequacy is made up for completely by the Holy Spirit's sufficiency. That's what praying in the Spirit is all about. It's partnership praying so that what I can't quite say, he makes up for. So that when it gets to heaven, it goes ka-ching. And it, it's like a sweet-smelling savour in the Lord's nostrils. He goes... Oh, I smell that enough prayer meeting. Oh, that makes me hungry to move. Because that's what, when we pray, God gets hungry to move. It's like when you walk past the fish and chip shop. Oh, you say, yes, I could just eat that now. Or a pizza shop or a whatever, whatever you like. You walk past it, you think, ah, oh, yeah, I could eat one of those right now. Corporate prayer stirs the heart of God by creating a smell in heaven that he likes. And he says, oh, I'm getting hungry to move. Doesn't it? And if you're saying, yeah, well, that's all very well, Mike, but what's the strategy? That's it. That's it. The rest will cascade from there. When I read the book of Acts, they prayed, they sought God, and God told them what to do next. Yeah? Compass no mat. We've got kind of, he's given us a bit of a clue, right? This wasn't a clever idea. I believe God helped us put this together. So we've got, we've got some idea where we're going now. We've got a collective kind of set of object, objectives. We've got some clarity. And if you can get every, one of these in the hand of everyone in your church, seriously, give it to them, buy it for them. Every new member, give them one of these. Say, get this in your fiber so you understand what we are part of collectively as a, as a family of churches. Get, just however it comes, get one in everyone's hand and please tell them to read it. So they understand the journey that God has put us on. This is God's idea, not mine. I really believe that. Do you 
I mean, we're not experts, we're learning. And there's lots of things we need to learn. Lots of things. And I, I want to receive from every, every part of the body of Christ where God's got something we can learn from and receive from. I absolutely really want to receive from everyone so that we can do what the unique part that God's calling us to. We can make our contribution but by learning and receiving from others. So let's stand together. And I just want to pray that God will really help us. We're just going to have then a, a quick break, and then we're going to actually do some praying together and ask for the Holy Spirit's help as we do that.